Welcome to the Forward 40 Podcast, where we highlight the experiences of 40 women of color on the rise in the nonprofit and social enterprise sectors. This is an ode to our foremothers, a healing circle of our unique experiences, and a bridge of insight and wisdom across generations. everyone to another episode of forward 40 very very thrilled to say you know mama i made it we have another international guest with us in the guest chair today um she is such an inspiration you know she's had ted talk she's an executive director of a thriving nonprofit um that was started in new york and she is based on the continent of africa currently based in nairobi and her name is noella moshi noella thank you for being with us it's a pleasure thanks for having me yes i'm so excited i was um drawn to your work because it's at the the nexus of social entrepreneurship and education. So um, for those that are listening in, Noella is the executive director of the Future Fund for Education. And uh, the organization works to catalyze education through entrepreneurship with African entrepreneurs who are focusing on solving education issues. Um, And Noella has a background in vocational uh, training and development, and then also in health as well. Um, I saw that you uh, co-led efforts um, to combat malaria, right? Yes, that's right. And um, my master's was in TB vaccine research. So uh, yeah, I studied uh, health sciences until I got my first job. Wow. Wow. Uh, quite, quite the journey. <laughs> and also, and also evident of um, just pivoting and being able to um, blend your, your experiences to, to serve a niche and um, serve a need in the community. So um, I guess enough of me talking about that. Noella, can you just share more about your journey, like shifting from being in the health sciences to now being in the space, uh, supporting social entrepreneurs, focusing on education and um, what, like, what's the work of the Future Fund for Education? Yeah, yeah. I um, where where shall I start? I mean, I first when I was a, a little girl, I thought I I want to be a doctor and I want to kind of save the world by finding cures to all these like mm. terrible illnesses. And um, that's kind of what got me into research science. Um, and so I studied molecular biology in my undergrad, and then um, worked in a tuberculosis vaccine research lab wow. um, for for my masters. And it was really good work and it was intellectually stimulating work but I really missed kind of the hands-on just immediately getting um a result from the efforts that I was putting in a result Mm. from the people around me and 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 like I just really feeling like I could I could make a difference and and my research was plodding along and I thought okay it's time to have the courage to step out of academia which is the only thing that you've known and see Mm. see what what else is out there 
Um, and I got really lucky, actually. My first boss was um, the founder of a chips and chicken company called Nando's. Huh. Um, and he was just, he'd stepped out of running the day-to-day of the restaurant. So it's um, um, a global chain. I think there's some branches in D.C., but he now wanted to focus on malaria control. Uh, and so he was talking about this at a workshop that I attended. And afterwards, I said, I'm really interested in getting involved. Is there any possibility of that? And he said, you know what? Um, yeah, sure. Why not? I'll give you a six-month internship, mm. which turned into about a year and a half mm. of just this really diverse range of, of projects. And the one thing that I learned there and that took me through to my career in education is that everyone is using the resources they can to kind of make the best possible decision, but there's no one who has complete information. There's no one that's an absolute expert. Mm, mm. And if you just try to open your minds to learning, you can become really good at like anything you put your mind to, if you're given the chance to try and do that. Yes, that's very powerful. I think, yeah, sometimes I think we put ourselves into boxes based on what we've studied or what people have told us our strengths are, but just seeing this man who, you know, had gone from running restaurants to now running kind of a malaria control organization, it it was really inspiring for me. Hmm. That is beautiful, beautiful. Um, And the, so the work of the Future Fund, um, it's, I mean, the representation of the entrepreneurs, they're from across the continent. Um, And I know when we briefly spoke before, um, you know, you, you were talking about like potential travel, like how are you, how, how is it that you manage mm-hmm. um, to like actualize this cross continental vision, like in terms of like the recruitment, the outreach and um, to ensure representation? Yeah. Yeah. So our, our entrepreneurs, we, our, our founding cohort is, five entrepreneurs from five different countries and across education subsectors. So um, one or two run schools, another runs an ed tech company, another university, for, just, just for example. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's been really, really helpful for us and our goals as an organization, because one of the things that we really want to do is build a community of, of learners, people who are just understand getting um, different perspectives from other countries and other education Mm. subsectors to improve their work. Mm -hmm. Um, We also just wanted to say uh, here, here are the experts, right? We're not, we're not bringing in someone from outside the continent or someone who has not done the amazing work that you've done to try and teach you. How can we set up infrastructure where you learn from each other? Mm. And so that diversity of perspective really helped. Um, the, the, so we were supposed to have our first workshop in May and, um, it was, it was going to be in person in Nairobi. None of our entrepreneurs are from Kenya, Mm. so they would have all flown in here. And I was really looking forward to that just as a community building piece. Like there's just so much amazing stuff that we can learn from each other once we've built that trust and once we've built those relationships. Uh And so we couldn't do that. Um, and also just as, as FFE, what we wanted to do, um, in terms of supporting the entrepreneurs was. Um, facilitate their growth. So they had a product, they have, they all have a product that works or service that works and are, are, we're trying to scale it. Okay. But because of COVID, yeah, the, the conversation really shifted from how do I grow to how do I survive? How do I adapt? Mm-hmm. And we had to also become flexible in that way. So we, um, instead of canceling, we, we thought, okay, no, 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 there's still a lot of value 
that everyone can derive from interacting with each other. So we, we made it virtual, the, the first workshop. Okay. And I was so happy with how each of them showed up for each other. We've not ever mm. met in person. But, um, there, you know, there are questions about scenarios, like, will my business survive? How long can I, like, what's my runway? Mm. You know, um, there, there are really questions that, that you had to have some level of, of faith in the other person's yes. kind of receptivity to, to share. And, and that happened. So uh, I learned a lot. Uh, all, everyone that, that participated also learned a lot. And, and um, I don't think that would have been possible if, if everyone was kind of a, a, a thought about things in the same way or had exactly the same kind of experiences. Yes. And I, you know, I thank you for sharing just kind of the, it's like it's speaking to the capacity building piece, like of this current moment of um, organizations and or businesses. Um, if they were previously thinking about scaling, now it's how can I just really keep myself afloat, keep the operations mm-hmm. afloat. And um, that even in an international context, like this is also um, stepping, you know, out of you know, whatever world and zone that we're in that others are being impacted by this. And then also just the broader um, landscape of education and and learning and specifically with the organizations, you know, FFEs focus on education, um, you know, how that would then shape up now um, as a result of, of the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that that I'm really worried about is just innovation in yeah. education. I think that's the first thing that people will cut funding to because you think about the essentials just as everyone yeah. in a classroom, regardless of the quality of the education they're receiving there, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, when I think about um, education being done successfully, it's this intersection of access and quality mm-hmm. because it's not enough to just give someone something that's not helpful and it's not enough that's on the side of access and on the side of quality it's not enough to say I'm going to give a, a select few a really good education yes. because what about the rest and and so what um what our entrepreneurs are doing and, and part of the reason we're really excited we're really excited about working with them is because they are thinking about both mm. of these problems and have proposed solutions that they then have you know made come to life and and so I I think that as kind of corporate foundations um, some of them may dry up or you definitely have like reduced spending power Mm -hmm. like as I think okay what are the things they'll prioritize I imagine it's 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 the really the the essentials Um, and so what happens to creating relevant um, Mm -hmm. quality education yes yes that is a great great point great point and this is the second cohort, right? This is uh, this is actually the first. So we oh, announced okay. them um, in February. Yeah. So this is a all very new for us at FFE. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And have you? I guess uh, in terms of that, you know, the level of engagement that the cohort just had. Um, did you discover that there are any trends that are popping up? Uh, whether it's, you know, related to the pandemic or not, but just like more broadly within the space of education, are there any themes and, and trends that uh, the entrepreneurs want to address or are working to address? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if I think about it kind of in, in this context of the, of the pandemic, there's 
kind of, a few major questions that people are asking. Um, the first is, how do I um, provide access to education remotely? And we see, um, you know, in the West and the US, Europe, people are talking about going digital and online learning. But um, in rural areas where internet penetration is low uh -huh. and, you know, people don't necessarily have parents who can help them to learn, maybe they've, they've you know, gone past their parents' learning level, uh -huh. it becomes really, really difficult to facilitate remote learning. So the solutions that work outside just won't work for, for some of our entrepreneurs. Uh -huh. I'm thinking specifically of one of them who's in um, a town in South Sudan and is really none of these remote options make sense. So he's actually putting together booklets and he's he's found some software that will help him to design uh, kind of hard hard um copy content that he can then distribute through marketplaces uh, um to kids on a regular basis. And and that has to be, you know, that has to be the solution. The second the second question is is uh you know it's it's more of a business question but really relevant for people who run schools is um talent management right it's there's two types of of um personnel there's the academic stuff the teachers yeah and then there's the operations stuff yeah how do you pay salaries for operations stuff when schools are closed and parents aren't paying fees right that's the first Ooh, question yeah <laughs> <laughs> and these are really values oriented entrepreneurs and it's just it's it's really hard decisions that they have to make mm. about about that and then on the other side working from home and just reduced productivity and the fact that teachers just aren't used to this online learning as well there's there's a retraining that needs to happen the question is how do you do that as quickly and as effectively as possible yes. and to the level where parents would say yes I will pay for this remote learning for those that that have internet access yes uh that it I I appreciate the point that you made about, um, and kudos to the entrepreneur that is already, you know, rising to the occasion and uh, being very flexible with still providing a, a space for students to learn. Um, the point that you made about determining who an essential worker is, right? Like whether you're on the mm -hmm. teaching side or the operation side. With my background, um, with I remember in undergrad and they were recruiting pretty heavy <laughs> to be a traditional, you know, teacher. Um, I did not, uh, you know, want to go that route, but still wanted to make a, an impact in the social sector. Um, it ended up starting in education operations, all key critical things, because as you're thinking about just connecting the components to learning um, and supporting teachers so that they are more effective uh, in their delivery of instruction, that operations piece is still very much valuable. Uh, but in terms of when people are factoring in cost um, and they're factoring in time, uh, there comes into question who is deemed as essential in this current moment. Yeah, yeah. And then and then if you're not deemed as quote unquote essential, what what happens? Correct. And, and how like sometimes it really it really isn't um an option to keep stuff on because you you you've run out of, of money and parents pay some of them per month, some of them mm -hmm. per term, but many of these kind of um 
uh, schools for lower income families don't ask for the whole year's um, payment up front, right? So you've, you've literally, you've run, you've run out of money, then how do you manage um, that transition out or or just telling people that you need to half their salary, for example. So mm. there's a lot of change management that um, that these entrepreneurs need to need to be doing. Yes, yes. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, I again I commend you for the work that you're doing and commend um, the entrepreneurs and and this cohort. I mean, I really, really thought this was the second cohort. So (laughs) congratulations again, Um, you know, and how they're rising to the occasion to to really adapt um, and and innovate um, in this moment and and beyond. Um, Mm. In terms of, you know, you are a leader in this organization. You're the face, you're you're the executive director. And um, you know, with the the face of leadership, especially as it relates to nonprofit leadership, social entrepreneurship, it's not always as representative of women of color, um, Black women, Latinx women, Native women, um, and I I wanted to know, you know, as you transition to this level of leadership, were there any biases um, that you encountered as you were approaching this position? And I guess, how did you overcome that? And, you know, whether it was like related to gender, whether it was related to race or, um, you know, like country identity, how did you manage to overcome those biases to still position yourself as a, a key authority for this organization. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, that's that's a really important um, topic to, d- to discuss. For this particular role, I was very lucky. And uh, I still, still consider myself really lucky because this is a family where our values are aligned. Um, mm. They were very deliberate in choosing someone who's from the continent and, and based here. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, reflecting that belief that Africans have the solutions to their own problems. Like mm. there's no need to hire someone external when an African is perfectly capable and intelligent and able to do it. So, yes. so we've, we've kind of worked with that mindset and with our entrepreneurs, like there's no, um, there's no like superiority because one person is the donor and another is the doer mm. um, and that mutual respect. Uh, and I think that's key. And it's, it's something that I really feel strongly about when choosing the next role or the next job. Um, I think it was was it Sheryl Sandberg that said, if you're offered a seat on a rocket ship, it doesn't matter what um, what seat you get on the, the rocket ship. Like hmm. hmm. the way I I kind of interpret that in my own life is just if there is a, a group or an organization where our values are aligned and I and I trust that my work will lead to a greater good, then I'm I'm getting on that rocket ship, you know, hmm. and so. It was very much a choice based on, on that alignment of values. But um, to more directly answer your question, yes, I've definitely, I mean, I think I think we all have in some shape or form um, faced some challenges yeah. uh, trying to be leaders as as black women. And I I try to I try to laugh about I, I try to laugh about mine. Um <laughs> what, what would happen in, in one of my previous roles, 
uh, it, was, it was actually a really funny moment where I was in a meeting room and um, supposed to meet with a with a like a marketing executive, uh-huh. and she showed up and then asked me to get her a cup of coffee. Oh my goodness, that is classic. <laughs> That is classic, Noel. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah. Wow. It was, it was just the most beautiful thing because um, I I I did not feel like bringing my ego into play there. So I said, "Yes, sure, I'll I'll get up." I before introducing myself, I got up and I and I went to the kitchen, and my boss actually followed me and said, "Oh, we'll all make coffee for ourselves today," and it was just <laughs> oh my this- gosh. <laughs> This demonstration, I don't know, you like that was wrong. We're not going to call you out, but now we all have to go to the kitchen, you know? And, um, and, and, and you have to just laugh about it. Did, you know, did she, did, did you see like a, like, I guess like a shift in her, in her demeanor or her face when she realized who you were? <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it was a little awkward. It was awkward for everyone, but you know. <laughs> Oh yeah, my goodness. She, she recovered to her credit and um, we got along quite well after that. So mm. yeah, people, people's uh, prejudices do come up, um, but I'm, I'm glad when they deal with them and get over it. Yeah. And I, I mean, I commend you for handling that with such grace and, uh, and positivity. I, <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm chuckling with you right now because as you know, as I said, it's just like, Wow. That has happened to so many black women, Latin women, native women. It's just like mm-hmm. th- this um, preconceived notion that you're the help. You you must not mm-hmm. be you must not be the leader. You must not be the executive in this room. You must be the help. Um, or the um, there was an article that was written a few years ago that was um, speaking about. Uh, I guess in in the context of menstruacy um, that uh, really took its hold in the U.S., it's like the workplace mammy, right? Like you are the servant Mm -hmm. um, for for everyone else. And that is a, a point of tension that we face in the sector that is mission driven, that is aligned with values, right? That is connected to... Uh, mission, uh, a, a dedicated cause and constituency because it's service oriented and um, there are generational and historical prejudices that um, do carry over, unfortunately. And again, I truly commend you um, for for handling yourself well. And because I love tea, I probably would have told her... <laughs> Actually, <laughs> there's no coffee here. <laughs> there's no coffee here. <laughs> this is a tea house. <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! Yeah, I mean, one one more thing I want to say about that is I, I, you know, I've come to you know really believe this is that no one can take your self-worth or your self-image away from you Mm. you have to let them take it they Mm. can't they can't force it away from you so even even when you see that initial kind of reaction like for me I I just I I know who I am Mm. and I know why I'm there and that's all that matters in in order to like help me get through whatever my objective is Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. and it is a pity because it's a missed opportunity 
on on the other person's part to connect with and learn from a, you know a, a different perspective correct but that's fine i can still get my work done yes 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 and that takes a that takes a strong sense of self um where it's very clear that you are very self-assured um, and confident. And um, sometimes even the most confident person, uh, because of life experience, work experience, um, that confidence may be shaken, right? Uh, but that mm-hmm. that is a great point that you made. Yeah. Um, so I know you spoke about, and I was really, really drawn to this, um, you know, the, the mission of the work being African led in terms of its solutions, why, why is that so important? Um, and especially like in the space of social entrepreneurship, why is that so, so key to the work? Yeah, this is, you know, this, this really, I had, um, my, as Oprah calls it, aha moment about this, especially in Nigeria, where uh, a third of the team at the vocational training center where um, I was working were actually um, graduates from a program. Mm. And what they brought and what they taught me is this deep empathy for the customer's experience. Mm. And so this drive to design a product that actually fits their needs mm. and they, that they would they would use. Um, and, and when you've lived a problem and then made it your kind of life's mission to solve it, the ambition, the, the way of thinking, um, the approach to the customers is just, it's special. Um, and so when I think of African problems, I don't know anyone better placed to solve them than, than the young Africans that, that are dealing with them on a, on a day-to-day basis. And there's just a level of commitment, I think, when it's your, you know, your hometown and your uh-huh. family or extended Absolutely. family, it's a, it's a thing. Um, so, so we, we want to bring in that energy. We also, you know, it's especially when it comes to education, right? Education is, in my opinion, a way to give other, to give people the freedom to make decisions for themselves. Yes. Yeah. And, um, if you think of a little kid in school who, you know, you open a textbook and you only see little white girls and little white boys, and you're like, all right, those are the people that study science or you listen to examples about how to calculate math equations with, with objects that you're just not familiar with, mm-hmm. you, you know you're this passive participant in your education, and it never becomes kind of a tool for freedom, a tool for empowerment. Mm. But when someone you know who looks like you has designed the products that you're using, or it's their accent you're seeing, you're hearing on your, your YouTube videos, whatever the case may be, then suddenly science is, is yours, or edu- the, the education is Yes. is something that yeah that, that you can internalize and then make your own as well you feel like you can use and and in especially in this day and age where it's less important at least in my opinion right people will will, will argue about this but i think um in terms of getting ready for the world of work the important thing is learning how to learn and whatever content you use as that as that kind of tool for learning how to learn is is secondary mm. so Mm-hmm. So it really becomes about how I learn as opposed to what I learn. And African-led solutions are bringing in kind of the really, it's it's not concrete, but it's so important, um, the, the, the aspects of education that make children uh, take it as their own. Yes. I, I really believe, yeah. 
I like that the how I learn is more important than what I learn. Um, where I, I definitely, there's much value in, in the what. Um, it's just that your, your take on the how, um, it speaks to kind of like overcoming limitations, right? Um, and that creativity, that, um, that space to be agile. And once you're equipped with the, the tools, then you can then be that change agent. You can then be that, that expert or, you know, that, that person that is knowledgeable of that particular, that particular craft. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also, you know, if you're learning about things that are relevant to your community, then Mm -hmm. that, so so I think about some of the the content that I've come across from from African entrepreneurs, and it's things like, okay, there's you know we're learning about uh, physics or or um, agriculture, and it's you know solve an irrigation problem that your community is facing, or in in your part, your mom's like patch of land, whatever the case may be. It's like I'm taking a real world project and I'm applying principles to solve it in such a way that even after I've graduated from that class, I continue with that problem-solving mindset. And it doesn't have to be big. Not everyone has to be the president of their country. But if we're all doing things like that, it it makes a difference. Correct, correct. Yes, I completely, completely agree. Completely agree. Um, When we spoke before, just kind of shifting it uh, a, a little bit, you mentioned telemigration and that was just new terminology for me. I was like, Ooh, what's, what's that? Um, so I guess for those that are not familiar um, with telemigration, can you just share more about what that is and what advantage um, do you see in this current moment? And also just in terms of the future of, telemigration and um, just Afropreneurship or African entrepreneurship? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, what I was referring to when I, when I said telemigration is just the ability to move from, to move geography. So to move from one city to another city or even one continent to another continent online virtually. So you don't physically have to get up off your seat. And all of the things that that enables when it comes to the world of work. Um, when when I think of of Africans and and the the struggle, so we've got the youngest population in the world, and this you know this is growing. Um, at the same time, there just aren't enough jobs, and that situation wow. isn't changing. So really, one of the biggest solutions, and and people out of necessity are already doing this is just moving to other continents to try and find work mm, but um okay. a friend of mine actually she calls so many african passports are green um and she calls the african passport um the green mamba because no immigration official wants to touch that passport we're mm. just you know not not welcome um and so how do you then find better opportunities for yourself for your family if you have the skills, but there's no jobs um, available and, and telemigration allows for this. So suddenly, um, it, you know, an African who has access to the Internet and, and has a laptop. So those are two really big. Yeah. Know, ifs, yes. But yes. can be 
you know, globally competitive. Um, and that's a huge opportunity. Wow. Thank you. Um, and I guess connected to that, because uh, once I learned from, you know, what you shared about telemigration, I was thinking about, you know, like this just growing desire for those that are in the African diaspora, part of the African diaspora to um, deepen their ties with their um, ancestral history and, and connections. Like, what are your thoughts on the value of telemigration and deepening the the connections across the diaspora? Yeah. Um, well, now that you, so initially I was thinking about it as, um, you know, my response was it's so, it's so valuable and so good to physically come and visit mm. um, for, for various reasons. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and I, and, and I'll, I'll go into that, but in terms of, in terms of that telemigration, just remote connection. Yeah, there is, there's so many different types of communities and things going on. I just think about the education ecosystem, for example, that we're trying to build. Mm -hmm. So there are opportunities to share knowledge and to really add value to the work that's happening here in a way that, that allows people in the the diaspora to have a a more granular understanding of the challenges and of the opportunities. Um, And, you know, there's no, you know, every cloud has a silver lining. So when Mm -hmm. I think of this awful pandemic, just the fact that more people are willing to get on a video call or just have meetings where they don't have to see um, or, or touch each other, then yeah. um, maybe there are more opportunities for relationships to be built um, mm-hmm. across mm-hmm. yeah across continents in the same sectors, maybe even in different ones. Yes, yeah. that is a great great point. Um, and and to your point about it, it doesn't necessarily take the place of visiting. <laughs> And and actually being there to feel um, the connection to the land, uh, to the people. Um, yes, this is also still yeah. a great opportunity to bridge that connection, bridge um, uh, what what appears to be a, a divide, right? Whether it's because of um, lack of knowledge, um, misinformation. Um, or even just access, right? Um, yeah, yeah, um, and it it is also just kind of scary to go into a completely new place, which yes. is you know, admittedly mm-hmm. much less structured than something we're familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, when I, I lived in South Africa and was was thinking about moving to Nigeria, uh, that that was kind of the case for me. I I've always felt like. A, more pan-African than that I'm just like from one African country from mm. Tanzania. And and when I think of all the all the cities on this continent, and there are many of them, Lagos and Nigeria just for me was just this bright, creative, colorful, entrepreneurial space mm. that I really wanted to be part of, that I felt like I could be fully myself in without ever having set foot in, in Nigeria before. Interesting. Um, and I got there and it was hard. I, I think that my first year in Lagos was one of the hardest years of my life in terms of just adjustment. Mm. Um, and it's lonely and it's a different culture and, and sometimes there's no water, whatever the case may be. But it also allowed me to, to actually just verify whether I really did feel like, you know, these are also my people in some sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw myself reflected in, in some of the culture. Like I, I like to speak my mind. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes, 
in Tanzania, where I'm from, and it's a much more it's a it's a softer spoken culture. I come across as rude, but <laughs> in, <laughs> but in Nigeria, I I could be myself. I fit right in, and and mm. everyone said what they were thinking, and I just. It, there's also something about going into a new place where you you have some ties, but you not not necessarily deep enough ties mm. that allows you to be fully yourself. There's no kind of extended family or convention that expects you to behave in a certain way. Yes. And so you get to define what parts of yourself you want, you want to, to kind of yes, develop. Yes. And, and I recommend that, especially like as a, as a homecoming, that would, yeah, really be something. Yes. That is a very, very great point. Um, and good strategy. Um, thank you for sharing that. It wasn't like even, I mean, just like the cultural distinctions of, um, even not being from Nigeria, but just perceiving it as like, oh, it's going to be this place. And though you're on the continent, it's like, okay, wait, <laughs> it mm-hmm. took you some time to, to adjust um, to, to the, sh- to the change. And you were still able to, um, to do so and find your niche while you were there. Um, and, and also make mm-hmm. impact uh, in the, in the community. So that's, that's great. Um, so I see in addition to the work that you do with, you know, leading FFE, um, and just being in the nonprofit space that you're also a poet and a writer. Um, is there anything in particular that you've been working on, um, that brings you joy? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, especially kind of during this pandemic, I've started writing, um, and I, I wake up earlier in the morning and, and write. Um, as much as I can. Mm. And I've been interested in the idea of perfectionism. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm developing a character who uh, she's a neurologist and tries to eliminate um, sadness in the world, but finds that she's actually um, destroyed part of what makes us human. Mm-hmm. And just this this idea that we don't have to be perfect. In fact, we shouldn't be. Per- we don't need to be perfect to be human. Mm-hmm. And there's mm-hmm. there's beauty in all of the mess. Um, and and so trying to describe that through one really extreme character's perspective just makes me ask questions about my own demands on myself and on other people. Oh my goodness! Well, I'm I'm excited about that. Are you planning to release it? during a certain time? Like, are you aiming for a particular year that you would like to release this? Well, I, you know, I just recently, it's only in the past few months I've really gotten the courage to to write and write seriously. So I don't know yet, um, but I'm really enjoying the process. That is awesome. That's really, really awesome. Um, One of my close friends, uh, she just released her children's book series. Um, and it is kind of like a, a new age um, magical school bus, and it's called the Magic Makers. Um, and I was talking to her just about the the process of her. Um, so she has her PhD, neuroscience, again, connection to what you were talking about. Um, and she, um, you know, over time developed 
strategies for what worked for what worked for her um, to to write, and it just started to build it from there before she decided. Um, to really release this series and you know we're really really happy for her and I'm an aspiring author myself um, and that really really taking that time to dedicate oneself to the process is is very very key and also therapeutic Mm. it's just very (laughs) therapeutic as well what are you um what are you writing about or what do you enjoy writing about yeah so I there is an author that I came across a couple of years ago. Her name is Lillian Rivera, and she's from the South Bronx, where I am from. And, um, well, in terms of from, and you know, based in, <laughs> you know, geography. Uh, and she's a young adult author, and I've become very interested in young adult um, fiction. So mm-hmm. I definitely plan to write a young adult novel um I it's like I can see the characters um haven't been able to identify a name yet uh but definitely going to work on setting aside that time to build out you know the character development and just and just write um uh, to, to your point about you know the perfectionism my friend even mentioned like you just don't put too much pressure on yourself and you know being the writer and the editor and you know the the agent all at once is just just get it all out let it flow um so i'm similar to you i'm looking forward to to the process as well that's so awesome um one thing um if i can if i can recommend is um this book that i read it's called the artist's way huh um that sounds so familiar oh my goodness it's like this it's a, it's kind of like a seven week process to, to recovering your creative self. Okay. And really in a nutshell, she, she, she's basically saying your, um, your artist is like the child within you and you need mm. to let her play mm. and you need to nurture her. And there have been people in your life and moments in your life that have told her that she's not good enough. And those are the things oh, that you need to so heal. Powerful. Yes. And yeah, it was super helpful for me. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to make sure that we include a link to that as well. <laughs> the episode release. Oh, thank you so much, Noella. Um, pleasure. Yes. I mean, it's it's been a pleasure to just connect with you um, to hear more about the great things that are just happening on the continent and um, also how... You know, there is this push um, and honoring of this asset. Well, I guess like in community development, it's kind of like an asset based approach, like making sure that things are focused on what are the assets within that community first before you're going in and saying, hey, we're going to solve for this. Um, that the community has the answers. How are you equipping with the skill set, with the capital, with the technical assistance um, and and the support for community leaders to to solve uh, for their own issues? So thank you again for helping to champion that change. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. Of course, of course. So as you know, unlike the woman that wanted you to get the coffee, uh, we close each (laughs) episode with a tea affirmation. Um, So what would be your tea affirmation for our listeners? Yeah, so so this is kind of what I've been telling my mantra for this year. 
has just been trust yourself. Yeah. Um, so I, I, you know, there's, there's a lot of uncertainty and I have to make decisions based on assumptions, not necessarily data, not, you know, my best guess. Um, and so I sit down and I say, did I do all the work I possibly could to get mm. the information? Did I try my best? Did I, did I check everything? If yes, then rest, just rest now and mm. trust yourself. And, and it's just taken a lot of weight off me. Wow. I love that. I, I love, I love the, the rest now piece as well. Rest now, trust yourself. I love it. Love it. Love it. Um, thank you so, so much. Um, for those that, you know, want to follow the journey of, uh, the entrepreneurs that are a part of FFE and just your work, how could they stay connected? Yeah, so we're on Twitter at Future Fund for Ed, um, and you you'd see my my um, Twitter handle too. It's um, at Noella Mo, and yeah, please follow us and and we'll follow back. Okay, well, thank you so much, Noella. It was a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Imani. This was awesome. <laughs> All the best. Until we connect again, sip, sis, sela, share and continue to serve.